sanctions on Russia. You're listening to the news on RTHK. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Thursday the 8th of September. Welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis with the latest business and finance headlines. China's latest customs data shows trade with the mainland slowed sharply in August, adding to the evidence of a rapidly cooling economy. China's export growth slowed to 7.1% from 18% in July, the weakest growth in export volumes since March. Import growth almost came to a standstill, climbing just 0.3% last month from 2.3% the previous month. US Trade Representative Catherine Tai suggested on Wednesday that tariffs will remain on Chinese imports until China has a more market-oriented economy. She said at a forum, what we really want from China in terms of economics and trade is for the Chinese economy to operate like ours and along the norms that we feel are embodied in organisations like the World Trade Organisation, which is open market-based, with a pretty clean separation between government and the state. The Chinese city of Chengdu, with a population of 21 million people, has extended the lockdown in most of its downtown areas, while allowing restrictions to ease in some suburban regions. Authorities in the city said that mass testing will continue and they pledged to eliminate the community spread of COVID within a week. Residents in locked down areas will remain at home and get tested for COVID daily. Schools and non-essential businesses will remain closed. Canada's central bank yesterday raised its key lending rate by 75 basis points to 3.25%, the highest level in 14 years, and warned that further rate rises were ahead to curb high inflation. And the European Union said Wednesday it will press on with a plan to cap the price of Russian oil and has put forward four other proposals to ease the effects of volatile energy prices, including a windfall tax on energy companies' profits. But Russian President Vladimir Putin condemned the idea as stupidity and said we will not supply gas, oil, coal, heating oil. We will not supply anything, he said, if it went against Russia's interests. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio Von Fahl and Louis Coyce from S&P Global Ratings. With a view from Taiwan, it's Ross Feingold at SafePro Group. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, US stocks rose Wednesday as bond yields and oil prices eased. The S&P 500 rose 1.8% to 3,980. The Dow gained 436 points, or 1.4%, to end the day at 31,581. The Nasdaq Composite broke a seven-day losing streak, jumping 2.1% higher to 11,792. Stocks rallied after Fed Vice Chair Lau Brainard said that the central bank would do what it takes to stifle inflation while also noting the risks of going too far. She said at some point in the tightening cycle, the risks will become more two-sided. In Europe, the region-wide Stock 600 index fell 0.6%. The UK's FTSE 100 dropped 0.9%. Hong Kong stocks slid for a fifth straight day. That's the longest losing streak since mid-July, as 
Traders worried about the impact of new lockdowns this week in Chengdu, Shenzhen and Guiyang on an already weak economy and also the declining Chinese yuan. By the end of the day, the Hang Seng Index had lost 158 points, that's 0.8%, to end at 19,044. At the low of the day, it dropped below the 19,000 level for the first time since the 15th of March. The tech index lost 1.3%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was up 0.1% at 3,246. Oil prices slumped with Brent crude oil settling 5.2% lower at $88 a barrel. That's its lowest close since January. And gold is trading almost 1% higher at $1,716 an ounce. U.S. Treasury yields dipped following a sharp rise on Tuesday. The yield on the 10-year note fell 8 basis points to 3.27%. And the dollar was sold on Wednesday after 8 days of rises. The euro rose 1% back to parity with the dollar ahead of the ECB meeting later today with the governing council under pressure to raise interest rates by 75 basis points. The Japanese yen was sold to a new 24-year low against the dollar, falling 0.6% to 144 and a quarter. Sterling fell as much as 1% at one stage to hit $1.14. That's the lowest level since 1985 when Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister. But it rebounded throughout the UK afternoon to end the day flat at $1.15 and a quarter and nine Hong Kong dollars and four cents. The People's Bank of China cut the yuan central parity rate by 64 pips to 6.9160 per US dollar. That's the weakest level in two years. However, it was the 11th straight session of stronger than expected fixings. And the yuan fix yesterday was at the strongest bias on record at 454 pips stronger than the average estimate. Offshore yuan slipped to as low as 6.9949 versus the dollar before recovering and it's currently at 6.96. Bitcoin is up 2.5% trading this morning at $19,200. And Asia Pacific stock markets are rebounding this morning. In Australia, the SX200 is up half a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has risen one and a quarter percent. The Cosby in South Korea up 0.4 percent. Does look like though it's going to be a flat open for the Hang Seng later on this morning. Coming up to 8.10, let's welcome our regular Thursday morning commentator, personal wealth advisor, Enzio von Farr. Morning, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also with us in our Queensway studio, Louis Coyce, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Morning to you, Louis. Morning, Peter. China's latest customs data showed trade with the mainland slowed sharply in August. Export growth slowed to 7.1% from 18% in July. That's the weakest growth in export volume since March. Import growth almost came to a standstill, climbing just 0.3% last month from 2.3% the previous month. And China's trade surplus narrowed from an all-time high of 101 and a quarter billion US dollars to 79.4 billion dollars last month. Um, NCO and Louis, trade had been the rare bright spot, hadn't it, for Chinese, for the Chinese economy in recent months. So what does this slowdown mean now going forward for the economy? 
it, it means that the um, in Kubler-Ross's diction of, of depression that people are beginning to have to move from denial into acceptance that the global economy is in fact slowing down. Recall about nine months ago when China was going to be that lone wolf supporting the global economy because everything was looking so wonderful in China. Well, of course, that's now changed. And so, and especially China's imports really growing at naught point naught basically means that the Chinese economy itself, for obvious reasons, I think, to all of our listeners, um, is going to keep on slowing for a long time. I'm looking at a recession in the fourth quarter of this year in China. Oh, really? You're, you're yeah. looking for actual contraction? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know what they're going to grow off. Um, certainly not vegetables and certainly not, not imports. Mm. But if, um, if it can no longer rely on the global eco- economy, which is slowing fast, mm. hasn't it got to switch now to focusing on domestic consumption? This is a very good point, Peter. I'm afraid, though, that if you keep on focusing more on on the, the, the COVID policies and stamping it out at any cost, I mean, the people in, in the various provinces that have been afflicted by earthquakes must be rightly annoyed, not even being able to move. The whole, the whole circulation system of China, the blood circulation system, has just been totally usurped. And I think that's mm. at the heart of why any economic tinkering just is not going to help. It cannot help. So, Louis, what, what are your thoughts on, the, on this slowdown in, uh, in trade, the one pillar that had really been helping the economy along? Well, yeah, so as Angela said, uh, imports, Ch- Chinese imports had already been slowing for quite some time. It were exports, Chinese exports, that were the, that were the, uh, the odd uh, variable, uh, the, 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 the exception. But with global demand slowing, it's not, it's not a surprise. We've been pointing to this for a long time that like exports, you know, from China, but also exports from Taiwan, from South Korea, from, from, from Japan and other places are slowing down as growth in Europe, in the US uh, and, and other places is slowing down. So this weak import number, is that reflecting really just the, the, the weak state of demand in, in mainland China? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, actually that weakness is quite a bit stronger than what these dollar numbers uh, imply because Chinese import prices, you know, are about 10% or so higher than a year ago on average if you if you put all products together. So in real terms, in, in, in terms of the amount of stuff that is going into China, we've seen very significant declines in imports uh, in China. So the, the, then China really has got to strike a balance, hasn't it, between uh, the domestic economy and containing these COVID outbreaks. Are you seeing any signs that they are uh, thinking about how to do that? Not yet. <laughs> oh dear. No, no. Like no, it has been very clear. Like you know, you can, you know, we can have many debates, but we cannot claim that the top leadership is not telling us what their priorities are. They've been mm. very clear. The Politburo a few weeks ago was very clear. Um, fighting COVID is our most important task. Um, and also in that same statement, the Politburo emphasized that it will de-emphasize earlier made growth targets for this year. Mm. I just think that maybe the, and I fully agree with Luis, but I just think that maybe with with Xi going abroad, I forget to which country down. Do you remember Kazakhstan? Which, Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan, yes. Um, not exactly the, the navel of the universe. We figured that one out, but at least that he's he's going abroad. I wonder whether that may indicate some. 
not look at the English some easing after the 16th of October um, conference, but who knows? If, if we look at the sum of all the recent data, it does seem that the economic news has gone from bad to worse, doesn't it? Because we had uh, manufacturing contracted in July, um, retail sales, industrial output, investments all slowed. We've got youth unemployment now um, at a record 20%. There's been a record outflow of investments via stock and bond connects. Um, maybe, and so this highlights the fact that, that the economy is going into contraction. A recession is on the cards. Well, I think so. I think that the economic time has definitely changed into an excess supply of money and very much an excess supply of goods, as we all know. And um, But again, it's this adamancy about um, wanting to control the COVID. That's, that's going to be the that, – that's really the Achilles – here and I, I don't know just how. No, I don't think anybody here, and certainly I, as, as a non-Mandarin speaker, can have any idea of, of of what's really going on in the policy circles. All that I can suggest is that people in China, whether they're Chinese or Ugandan or German or English or even Dutch, whether it matters um, what nationality, everybody would be very angry if you've been focused with if you've been stunned with an earthquake and you can't move around. Mm. Um, so should alarm bells be ringing, Louis, for the global um, uh, global economy and for policymakers and investors abroad? Because China's obviously very heavily integrated into the global uh, supply chain. It's been a big source of uh, foreign uh, demand for foreign goods and, and services. Um, should policymakers be getting concerned by the, what's happening now on the mainland? Well, I think gen more generally, I think we should all be concerned that... Um, you know, sometimes we have China picking up when the U.S. is slowing down. Uh, that's unfortunately not going to happen in the coming months. So mm. when we have a few of the big engines of the global economy slowing at the same time or sputtering at the same time, mm. that is problematic. And, you know, it's too early to say whether the U.S. is really sputtering because the labor market continues to surprise us on, you know, on, on the strength side. But uh, the U.S., is likely to slow down. The Fed wants it uh, so, and at a weak China is not helping in, in terms of demand, right? Like as, as some of the U.S. policymakers are pointing out, a weak China actually helps the U.S. in fighting inflation, but it doesn't help mm. on the growth front. And what about Europe? The European Union said Wednesday it's going to press on with a plan to cap the price of Russian oil. They're also going to put uh, uh, windfall taxes on, uh, on energy companies. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has basically threatened to cut off everything, gas, oil, coal, heating oil, um, if, if they continue down this route. Um, how big a crisis is this? I mean, we're talking about now um, maybe um, Europe not receiving any fuel supplies of, at all from Russia this winter. Huge crisis, and I think it's going to, once the voters move away from the theory of reading about Putin's understandable moves in the press to get, having to get under a cold shower at six in the mornings and having and sitting in the chilly flat all day, I think that's going to change minds a lot in Europe. And I think that Europe is going to become a very a hotbed of frozen politics going forward because the people just aren't going to take this. And of course, not to forget the grain uh, import things that, that Putin is also doing, which I, by the way, I'll put my hand up. I think I understand totally where he's coming from. War is war, and he's going to use mm. tools to do this. I mean, NATO decided to expand despite having, pr pr um, having promised Gorbachev that they would not. 
And while I don't condone what Putin is doing, at least I understand what he is doing. But then, you know, this is what he's hoping, isn't it? That uh, the European voters will turn against their, their leadership after a, a harsh winter with no, no heating. You tell me that after a not 0.5 degree cold shower in the mornings, Peter. <laughs> you know, Peter, I do. I, I have a lot of sympathy for several of the points that NGO makes. I do also uh, want to make two points, though. You know, Putin has a stronghold on Europe on in terms of gas. And on oil, like the U, uh, Russian exports of oil to Europe are probably not large enough for him to have such a stronghold. And secondly, you know, I think I, I agree, Europe is going to go th through some really tough times. If you look at the price increases and how it erodes people's purchasing powers, what is left over after you have paid your, your gas bills, it's going to be really, really tough. But mm. I also observe that this is kind of that this will basically speed up Europe's transition away from uh, from from Russian gas supply and and towards greener energy so it is i guess i mean uh, if you want to have any hope for Europe it's going to be short term uh, pain for longer term gain on this front so has putin in effect played his last economic card he, he can't do much more i think he? he should watch out in in what way well the, the more that uh, the more that gas and oil and other energy flows are being halted, the, the faster that this transition away from, from Russia mm. uh, is, will go. And Europe's never again going to rely on Russia for so much of its gas, is it? So this puts in effect much, maybe not in the short term, but in the long term, it's a big problem for Russia, isn't it, in terms of its revenues, also its ability to develop and, and, uh, and modernize its, its energy industry. Yeah, in a way, it is a little like if you look at it from a global picture, it is a little. It's it's not very good for those of us who who like to see globalization because it will probably speed up the the you know the decoupling because yeah. Russia will probably find markets for its energy in in the east in Asia, mm -hmm. but uh, we wo we won't see a lot of it going to the west anymore. Just if I could add to what Peter's um, loose, very erudite comments, let's not forget that the other big baddie in this is, of course, OPEC of all people, because OPEC Plus has mm. said, well, we're going to curtail production by 100,000 barrels a day, which in the greater scheme of things we know isn't sort of a big number, but in the symbolic effect, that's telling us an awful lot. And the other point that I've got to just get in as a dig to my countrymen in Germany is that this stupid oil, the stupid gas policy of the Germans has been going on since Adenauer in the 50s, where they said, let's cozy up to Russia, let's be friends with the grizzly bear, and let's buy oil from Russia. And everybody was saying, but you're, you're putting yourselves in the hands of Russia. Well, that doesn't matter. They'll, they'll mm. be nice, fuzzy friends. Yeah, they forgot about the clause. I, I saw a report that said uh, that uh, today's prices, energy prices, in effect, the worsening of the terms of trade is costing 3.3% of Germany's GDP, 5.3% of Italy's GDP. This is bigger than the two oil shocks of the 1970s. And, and longer lasting, no, Louise? Yeah, yeah. I think at least. Yeah. Now, what, one, one consequence of all of this in the financial markets is the dollar strength. The US dollar is surging, um, surging against the Japanese yen, against the Chinese um, yuan. How much of a headache is this strong dollar for Asian economies? You know, um, it depends. Um, 
I think a lot of people are anxious when they see their currency weaken and some Japanese politicians and many people on, uh, in the public in Japan get worried. To be completely honest, for most uh, developed economies and even nowadays for many uh, developing economies that have a reasonable degree of uh, you know central bank reputation and financial stability a weak currency is like purely from the economic growth perspective is helping you it will help Europe it will help Japan now there are concerns that weaker currencies uh, you know aggravate the inflation problem which which is true but you know, um, it's going. It's very, it's going to be very interesting. In, for instance, in countries like Japan, you will see politicians worrying about this as the as people mm -hmm. complain. But the Bank of Japan most likely not budging from its uh, monetary policy stance, the very accommodative monetary policy stance, because they continue to be focused on consumer price inflation. Will it be higher than two percent on a sustained basis or not? And on this front, it is quite uh, striking that the Japanese inflation is not really uh, going to be, you know, significantly higher than 2% for a long time. And the, the headline move numbers, aren't they? Big numbers we're talking about for the Japanese yen, um, a 25% loss this year so far. That's the biggest on record for, uh, for, for any year. Also, we've got the Chinese yuan that's heading for seven per dollar. And we've had outflows now, or we've had a weak yuan every month for the last uh, six months, we've got uh, record outflows uh, of investments. Is that a problem? Um, less than the way you're portraying it, I believe, because the one has fallen. We all know that, but it's fallen less than a lot of the other Asian currencies. So, mm. so that's point number one. Point number two is in a book that I wrote some years ago called Trade Myths. I did point out that the idea of a falling exchange rate promoting exports is perhaps when you're selling potatoes and socks works, but if you're selling anything remotely sophisticated, it doesn't really work. I mean, mm -hmm. take the, in, in my day, the German and the Japanese trade surpluses despite very strong Deutschmarks and yen. So I, it, it, what it's going to do with the non-Chinese non Asians, that's a bit of a mouthful, um, is it's going to actually fan their imported inflation, which may in a way help at least on the corporate side with the margins. Okay, well, thank you for your thoughts. That's personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fahl. You also heard Asia Chief Economist at S&P Global Ratings, Louis Quiss. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. An announcement from the Transport Department due to a traffic accident. Parts of the lanes of Tunmun Road in the direction of Yunglong near Sanhoi are closed to all traffic. On the phone now from Taipei is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Sapro Group. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Now, tell me about um, UMC founder uh, Robert Sao. There's been a lot of talk about him over in Taiwan at the moment, hasn't there? Yeah, one of the founders of the uh, Semicon Fab UMC, uh, uh, traditionally considered number two in the fab industry to the much larger TSMC. Uh, about 15 years ago, uh, 
He got ran into trouble with the Taiwan authorities over a proposed UMC investment in China. So he left Taiwan in a huff. He was kind of angry, complained about the restrictions on uh, corporate investment decisions. And uh, he gave up uh, his nationality and became a, a Singapore citizen. But in recent years, he's become a China critic. And uh, over the last uh, six weeks or so, he's held several press conferences and he's made pledges uh, to uh, donate around 100 million U.S. dollars to train people in civil defense, kind of a Ukraine-style civil defense, or some people call it territorial defense. Uh, how it's actually going to work out in practice remains to be seen, though. So he he was one of the early investors in mainland China. He opened a manufacturing plant in China, didn't he, for semiconductors, one of the first. He's invested hundreds of millions of dollars on the mainland. How does he justify this sudden turnaround? What does he say about all those former investments that he's done? Well, the first thing uh, he will say, or the company will say, is he's long since retired. So mm. <laughs> they, they parted ways years ago. Uh, for a long time, he was called the honorary chairman, even though that wasn't actually a former title. So he's no longer involved in the company. But uh, yeah, he says yeah, China's changed. It hasn't worked out the way we all thought it would and, and become a, a, a more friendly nation. We were just talking in the earlier segment about Germany's approach uh, to Russia. So he said he's come come to a realization about uh, what what, it, what China's like and the threat that uh, it is for Taiwan. Uh, but but you, you're you're very correct to raise this question, and there are a lot of cynics here who say, wait, what? <laughs> Not only did you give up your nationality, become a foreign citizen, uh, even though recently he restored his Taiwan uh, nationality and gave up his Singapore status, uh, but but you actually put a lot of money in China, and not just in traditional industries. You weren't making shoes or or, or, or plastic cases. Pieces, you are actually at the, at the cutting edge. You're, you're in the semiconductor business, and, and you put a lot of money into China back then, and, and actually was a big help to developing China's semiconductor industry. So certainly, it, it does generate a lot of cynicism and also uh, the, the headline number might seem very large but he says he's going to spend 100 million US dollars and he wants to train you know millions of people uh, there's been a lot of news reports where they're doing uh, interviews on the street where people are are being asked so what do you think 3 million people $100 million, you'll get a couple of dollars a year to go to this trading course, and then people just start laughing. Mm. Now, um, Taiwan's also taking measures to attract foreign workers for its pillow industries, uh, such as high-tech, biomedicine, green energy, defense. It wants 400,000 foreign workers. Obviously, that Taiwan's not the only place. Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, all facing a talent shortage. What is What is Taiwan trying to do about it? This has been a long struggle for Taiwan compared to other locations around the region. It's really never been a place that attracts large numbers of white-collar global executives, if for no other reason that Taiwan is traditionally uh, not, not been a hub. It's been a spoke location. And over the years, it's become more inward focused, I would say, that, that, that business operations in Taiwan tend to support 
business operations in Taiwan, uh, mm. especially for multinational companies, as opposed to, say, a, a Taiwan headquartered company where, where they are. They might be supporting their uh, global operations, but they don't necessarily uh, hire a lot of foreign talent either. Uh, so for multinational companies, uh, if they bring any foreign executives to Taiwan, again, typically it's to support the Taiwan business, and then the need for foreign talent has shrunk over the years as the local talent pool uh, has increased its skills substantially. Uh, Tax rates are relatively high here as well. Uh, Traditionally, Taiwan has also needed to fill labor needs uh, on the blue-collar side, uh, uh, in factories, uh, even in agriculture, uh, and there's many hundreds of thousands of workers from Southeast Asia here. Uh, They'll probably continue to do that, but whether they'll actually attract a lot of white-collar talent, uh, they'll they'll always be competing with some of the other locations around the region. Okay, Ross, sadly we've run out of time, but thank you very much. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Sapro Group. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets, the SX200 in Australia up about 0.4%. Nikkei 225 moving further ahead in Japan up 1.6%. Over in Seoul, the Cosby up 0.4%. And futures markets indicating a gain of about 30 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for the final Money Talk of the Week. Back chat is coming up after the news with Janice Wong and Jenny Lam. The weather forecast. Sunny periods, one or two showers. Hot during the day, maximum temperature about 32 degrees. And there's going to be sunny intervals and a few showers on the mid-autumn festival. And the temperature right now, 29 degrees, 75% relative humidity. Times 8.31. Here's Andrew Shrosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. Government officials will inspect cranes at all construction sites across Hong Kong after a tower crane collapsed yesterday, killing three people and injuring six others. It came down on top of several containers that served as makeshift offices at a housing society construction site on Anderson Road. The Secretary for Labor and Welfare, Chris Sun, announced that all the use of all cranes at the Samaoping site was being suspended. We are going to issue a suspension order to stop the work of the three tower cranes in this construction site. The order will be enforced until a proof is given to the Labor Department that they are safe to operate once again. So there is no time limit to the suspension order. An investigation is underway into what caused the accident. Chief Executive John Lee expressed concern about the tragedy and extended his condolences to the victims and their families. President Putin has said sanctions imposed on Russia represent the biggest current threat to the world economy, but he said they were not working and it was impossible to isolate his country. Mr. Putin told the Far East Economic Forum that Asia was rising just as the West was falling. The BBC's Steve Rosenberg was listening to his speech. From President Putin, there were threats too to the West. Russia, he said, would stop supplying oil, gas, every kind of fuel if Western nations went ahead with plans for a price cap on Russian energy exports. In his standoff with the West, energy is Vladimir Putin's trump card. He knows how reliant Europe is on Russian fuel. His calculation is that to avoid freezing, Europe will eventually capitulate and ease sanctions on Russia. 
The Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has said opinion polls suggesting he will lose next month's election are a lie. In a speech in Brasilia to mark 200 years since independence, Mr. Bolsonaro described the party led by his challenger, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, as evil. We know that we have a fight between good and evil ahead of us. The evil that lasted for 14 years in our country, that almost broke our homeland and now wants to come back to the crime scene. They won't. The people are by our side. The people are on the side of good. The people know what they want. Mr. Bolsonaro's comments have renewed concerns that he will not accept the results if he loses the election in October. At least 32 people are now known to have died in a fire at a karaoke bar in southern Vietnam. The search for victims at the scene has ended. The blaze engulfed two floors of the building in Chuan An City, trapping customers and staff. Some of them were stuck on balconies and are reported to have tried to jump to safety. Vietnam's Prime Minister Pham Minh Chan has ordered an investigation. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome.